Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of Pontificating Across the Pond. In this episode, we talk about the union budget, which was recently presented by Nirmala Sitaraman, the hits and the misses, but more importantly, why the adherence to or lowering the fiscal deficit target was a good move, but at the same time, losing employees from the Reserve Bank of India is not good for this economy. And Som then takes us into the world of Monocle and why he thinks it's one of the most important companies in the world today. So we just had Nirmala Sitaraman's first budget um, last Friday. Um, as usual, um, Uday, I just kind of felt this uh, sense of foreboding, you know, even before uh, uh, the budget was uh, read out and I kind of already had like the headlines in my head uh, the previous evening. Um, and just like every year uh, that I've been kind of tracking uh, the budget or trying my best to at least understand it uh, over the last decade, um, you know, the media came out with uh, an unsatisfactory budget and not enough punch and there wasn't enough vision to it. Um, it just seems to be like the dialogue around uh, you know, the budget for the last uh, 10 to 11 years. I, I don't know if it was the fact even before that. Um, but, you know, like, when was the last good budget we had? Because everything just seems to be lacking vision. And what did you think about uh, the BJP government's, uh, you know, first budget in the second term? I think going by the media's reaction, the last budget they would have really liked and lapped up would have been the 91 budget that uh, <laughs> helped liberalize India's economy because every budget after that has uh, disappointed some sections. And uh, given most of these uh, reporters in India's financial press, they're obviously middle class and they only look at the budget from the middle class angle. And the one refrain and the one binding thread all these budgets is that they haven't done enough for the middle class. And I think that's a very wrong view to take off the budget. I don't think cutting tax rates or increasing exemptions in this budget would have been a prudent move. A, the government actually focused on making structural adjustments. This government has focused on, say, infrastructure, where they maintain their spending. And what that does is, in a virtuous cycle, help bring down India's supply-side inflation. It helps bring goods faster and cleaner and less spoiled to the markets and indirectly into middle-class homes. So these big projects have to be funded. And they're not going to be funded if the Indian middle class doesn't pay their taxes. It is a valid criticism that this government has tried to tax the one base which actually pays, which is the salaried middle class, way too much. And that might be a, might be an acceptable argument up till one point. But I think with this budget that entirely breaks down, this government has signaled very clearly that they want to continue spending on infrastructure. They have brought down GST on many of the consumables that the middle class overwhelmingly consumes. So that is also more money into Indian pockets. And I know it's purely a signaling move, but they have also helped. They've cut down the GST rates on uh, electric vehicles from 12 to 5%. And going back in the supply chain, what they've also done is they've entirely removed customer duty, uh, so import duty on e-driver assembly, on board chargers, e-compressors, 
So all these things will help push the economy and push the country towards a vision that this government has. You may not agree with it, but you have to give it to the government that despite so much opposition from every quarter of the press, they have actually stuck with the vision that they came into power with. And this was five years ago. And they broadly stuck with this uh, vision. And another point as to which budget truly excited us in the past 15, 20 years. I think the budget's importance since 91 itself has gone down. Uh, the government, say, for example, can only make an announcement about disinvestment in the budget. But the meat actually lies in the performance of disinvestment through the year, whether they've actually helped divest government stakes and they've actually helped place strategic sales through the year. It doesn't matter whether the government comes out and says we'll lift, we'll disinvest one lakh five thousand crores. It doesn't matter if the government doesn't actually follow up on that. So a lot of what the budget puts out are guiding targets, and they're they're liable to be revised. So we shouldn't read too much into this. Obviously, tax and GST are things which will stay on for the year. So those are factors we can scrutinize. But as for the others, it's A, market signaling, and B, this government has continued its focus on structural improvements. So then, in essence, more a guideline document than really a vision statement, right? I mean, and I think that's what um, some of the press needs to understand. But, you know, even keeping that in mind, uh, one thing that has been consistent uh, from the previous budget, uh, even into this one, um, and, you know, throughout the BJP tenure uh, is the fiscal uh, discipline, right? And uh, Modi, even before the uh, elections, very clearly signaling that uh, while social welfare has clearly become top of mind for him, he isn't going to necessarily dole out the money just to kind of prove the point. Um, has that theme broadly continued this time around? I think it's definitely continued and many analysts were surprised that Nirmala Sitaraman not only uh, adhered to the previous fiscal deficit target of 3.4%, but she actually bettered it. She lowered yeah, the yeah. target to 3.3%. And I will put my neck out right now and say that when the next budget is presented, we would not have met that target. The fiscal deficit will not fall to 3.3%. It's a very good, ambitious target to have. It's a very good signaling move to the international markets, the international investing community, that this government will not go on a spending spree. It will continue on its path of prudence and it will be responsible with where it deploys the money. But having said all of that, this government will find it incredibly hard to meet that target. A, because they've give, what they've given up in terms of their uh, GST, they have to spend it in social benefits. What they've given up, say, in terms of lowering the corporate tax rate uh, for companies with revenues up to 400 crores a year, they will actually have to spend that money in infrastructure. So they've given up a lot of money on the revenue side and their expenditure hasn't fallen all that much. So I, for one, definitely think they will not meet this target, but it's still a good ambitious target to have. I think this will be... Uh, subject to revision somewhere in November when the 15th Finance Commission presents its uh, recommendations to the Finance Ministry. I think around that time, this government will definitely revise it, but it's not a bad target to have. Right. And, you know, talking about targets, um, 
uh, one of the things the Modi government was uh, bashed a lot for uh, in the lead up to the elections was the you know, uh, decreased employment rate over the last uh, couple of years. Uh, do you see any positive moves um, uh, from the government on the budget that you feel will kind of stimulate, um, you know, employment for the youth? I mean, it, it still seems uh, like something everyone seems to continue to question. And I think it's fair to question the government on that. What uh, economists would call jobless growth is something we've uh, achieved in the past four or five years. It's uh, not the best example to emulate, but we've done that. And it's only right to question the government. Uh, honestly, in the budget, there was nothing specifically which will start generating employment. And I think the proof of the pudding with respect to the structural changes that they hope to bring in is whether eventually private sector investment picks up. That is one area which has lagged far behind government spending, which uh, the private sector, they haven't seen their animal spirits released, and hence they haven't made nearly enough investment in the country. And that is the reason the unemployment figures have been rising. Uh, in years gone by, decades gone by, the government could actually absorb a lot of this uh, spare capacity in workforce, and uh, but with agriculture suffering, with PSU suffering and public sector banks suffering, there is no way to, there is no place to employ uh, India's unemployable and unemployed youth. So the onus is on the private sector to actually pick up the, pick up this slack. There are a few moves in this budget, which hopefully the private sector will like, uh, Again, things like massive infrastructure spending. The government has a very clear vision on the fact that they want to deregulate the power market. They want to bring in one grade for the entire nation. Now, these are the kind of sectors which generate disproportionately high employment. And uh, auto sector is another key example. In fact, many in the industry were very disappointed in the auto industry that the GST for two-wheelers was not cut. Uh, but because this is an industry which also helps generate a lot of employment. So keeping aside that disappointment, the fact that this government is focusing on building better roads, on building better infrastructure, that will inevitably lead to a boost for uh, auto consumptions. And what the public also needs to understand is behind all these headline numbers, uh, all market commentators and analysts find it very easy to pick up a number like the falling auto sales. Now, auto sales are a bellwether of how well the Indian economy is doing, of how much money there is in the Indian consumer's pocket. But what this Indian consumer and the India's financial analyst is not looking at is the fact that the non-banking financial uh, crisis has reached its peak. The NBFC funding line has completely dried up. And a lot of these two-wheeler sales, four-wheeler sales, commercial vehicle sales are actually no longer funded by the banks. They're funded by the NBFCs. So given that the NBFCs are struggling, they have massive non-performing assets on their books. Where do you think this funding is going to come from? So that is one of the reasons, along with a general economic slowdown, which has led to the drying up of something like auto sales. But analysts and consumers are not looking at these things nearly closely enough. Right. And uh, in, in typical style, I mean, there is this clear vision um, of uh, the fiscal policy in the country. Uh, the BJP government has 
you know stuck to a story out there um but when you look at the the monetary policy uh, you know and just the thinking around it um what what worries me is uh, and we kind of uh, uh, spoke about this in the previous episode i mean uh, just what a lot of uh, companies seem to be facing in the country right now is just a sense of uh, uh, constant attrition uh, even in the rbi right and uh, it it has been worrying uh, that while on one hand uh, the bjp government i mean historically uh, known uh, for uh, its its ability to kind of uh, develop the economy understand uh, you know both the fiscal and the monetary side of uh, uh, governing but have somehow not been able to keep that institution together which is so key uh, to uh, our development um let, let's kind of get into that because that's where we kind of started off this entire thread uh, in our last episode absolutely and just quickly going back to the point on fiscal deficit uh, the fact that this government has lowered its target uh, i don't think people need to be as concerned also because when you include state government spending and you include off budget expenses which have been going up for the past 5 years the fiscal deficit number does anyway come up close to about 9% so i don't think the government has tightened its fiscal belt to the extent that the public is fearing uh, off budget expenses and state government largesse these are the two key drivers now of india's combined fiscal deficit so there's not much to worry about there uh moving from the fiscal side to the monetary side uh, i think you are right we were both very disappointed with the recent slew of departures within the rbi uh, going back to the previous uh, one of the previous uh, rbi governors when raghuram rajan left uh, he had left because the government didn't like him meddling in political matters but also why he left was he was asking for too much power to be concentrated within the RBI his thought and his vision was that the RBI is the steward and the guardian of india's monetary system and india's banks then they also have to be given the power to regulate these banks the banks cannot continue reporting to the finance ministry and that was a key point of disagreement and that thread has continued through to the last deputy governor that we lost viral acharya via the previous governor urjit patel all western educated and all of them have found it prudent to move on while their reputation was still intact uh, it's key to note that all of them are academics i think they would be badgered back in their uh, home academic circles if they oversaw moves like uh, demonetization and didn't raise concerns about it they would be uh, slagged off within their circles if say they did not try to concentrate more banking power within the rbi so that is definitely a cause of concern because what this government or what any government should want is to have the best minds doing the most challenging things uh, which is why i welcome nirmala sitaraman's elevation as finance minister from the defense minister she is very open she is clearly articulate and an intellectual and she followed up her budget presentation by doing an exclusive with india today where there was a round table of uh, various titans of industry questioning her so she is open to being questioned which is very unlike uh, say narendra modi or amit shah so uh, the finance ministry is doing its bit but this government should also definitely focus on keeping talent within the rbi see all these governors who have come in leaving their uh, tenured uh, 
tenured positions at uh, Western universities, even they came here clearly not for the money. The RBI nearly doesn't pay them enough uh, if you go by market rates. They came here to help the country. They came here to help the company country share uh, shape its uh, monetary policy. They came here to help the country chart its uh, economic growth and economic future. So I don't think we should slag off these governors who are leaving as some of the more ardent supporters of the BJP tend to do. I think it's rightly mourned that we've lost three really capable governors, uh, one, one deputy governor and two governors. I think it's right that we uh, question the government on that. Because we want our best minds being the stewards of this economy and our foreign exchange reserves. And RBI's role is more important than ever when you think about the NPA crisis the government has to deal with. The non-performing assets now are close to 10 trillion rupees. There is no way uh, an unempowered uh, RBI governor will be able to tackle this. And there's also no way the finance ministry alone will be able to target this. Uh, so a strong RBI is a must. Every appointment will be a political appointment. There is no point crying horse about the independence of the RBI. The RBI is eventually there to serve the country and meet the country's uh, targets. But we should definitely mourn these losses. And I personally, I felt these losses quite keenly because I thought they were good stewards of the economy and the country's uh, banking system, which we lost. And I don't think we can afford to lose these people. So, on, I mean, on that note, I would like to ideally be able to uh, leave on a slightly happier note um, because we have been lamenting these losses uh, for the last couple of episodes. Um, so, I, I just uh, wanted to ask you there. I mean, I felt like uh, some of the moves on water security, um, you know, for some of the urban pockets in the country, uh, you know, the Niti Aayog is working on a, a strong framework for... Uh, uh, ensuring water security by the time this BJP term comes to an end. For me, that was a huge positive. Uh, again, purely in terms of outlining a vision, uh, how much of the follow-through happens, like you mentioned, is to be seen, but at least, you know, the building blocks are being laid for it in, at a time where things are already quite desperate, I feel. Um, any similar kind of signals that you felt were, um, you know, really positive or kind of gave you some hope about how this government is thinking? I think purely, again, as, uh, you know, symbols or as market signals, uh, the fiscal deficit, which we've touched upon. Moving on from that, uh, also the fact that this government uh, came out with uh, a disinvestment target. And right. this is the legacy of NDA 1, the Vajpayee NDA, that all of us will remember. That yeah. it was the first government which was very successful in divesting state assets and not purely selling a state asset to another state-owned uh, company, but actually making a strategic sale. Say when they let go of Hindustan Zinc, that company thrived and it was a great investment for anyone who would have cared to invest in that stock. So this government has come out with a target. I think this government also learns its lessons uh, quite well. Uh, they really botched the Air India sale. And I think they've learned from that. They, all the market signals that they've sent out since then are that they will look to either relax uh, restrictions on foreign direct investment on uh, in a few of these key sectors where they hope to make these divestments. And in a world, when you put this against the market environment globally, there is a hunt for yield. Uh, about 75% of the government debt in this world 
gives you a return of less than 2%. And what that tells me is that this money is waiting to pour into countries like India, which will give them a much higher return. So all India has to do is say, lift their uh, restrict, lift our restrictions on uh, foreign investments in a lot of these key sectors, aviation, insurance, media, there are lo- and banking, which is key. There are a lot of public sector undertakings operating in these sectors. So if we were to, on, the, uh, on one side, open up the FDI limit, and on the other, then signal to these uh, foreign and institutional investors that they can now invest in these, uh, say, in these companies as the majority owner and not purely a partner of the Indian government, then I think we definitely have a winning combination. And uh, I mean, I know we wanted to end on a high note, but uh, just to lap, uh, quickly wrap up the reaction from the foreign press, I think the Financial Times also was not fully satisfied with this uh, budget. And uh, even the Indian markets, honestly, would not. Uh, both yep. Friday and Monday, uh, Sensex and Nifty, they extended their losses. But that was more due to the fact that uh, now Sitaraman has this plan to require listed companies to offer at least 35% of its stock to the public and not just 25 which was the earlier limit. So yep. a lot of powerful controlling shareholders will have to shed their uh, holdings in their uh, companies. And that is what has led to some downward pressure. Uh, But uh, the Financial Times, again, was not entirely positive on this. They also questioned how the government will be able to meet their targets, uh, especially on their uh, fiscal deficit. But uh, the key would be the off-budget action that Sita Raman and her ministry are able to take on helping alleviate the pressures in India's financial sector. If they can sort out the public sector banks and the non-banking financial corporations, I think that is the one thing which will unleash these animal spirits in the industry. And uh, if there was one minister you could pick, I would definitely pick uh, Sita Raman because she's open. She clearly knows how the finance ministry works. She's worked there before. And I think she has the confidence of the market and confidence of the titans of industry. So I would say this, the roadmap set out is quite encouraging. Great, Uday. I mean, you did leave us on a high note, finally. And, <laughs> I uh, yeah. and from uh, how the Indian government is spending their money to where I am spending some of my money uh, over the last uh, couple of months, <laughs> uh, I think I'm very excited to kind of move on to the next segment. Absolutely. Soam, so recently you directed me towards this quaint little cafe in Baker Street in London called the Monocle Cafe. And uh, I would be very honest, I didn't know much about it before I entered it. But uh, A, the cafe was really nice, inviting something very different in a city where there are hundreds and thousands of cafes. But there's a much larger organization behind the facade of the cafe. So why don't you tell our listeners what that is and uh, what it's helping to do in the world today? Right, Uday. I mean, I know I tricked you into going there and uh, kind of uh, inceptioned you uh, a few (laughs) weeks back uh, into doing this. But uh, the Monocle Cafe, uh, first of all, there's only one in London and there's the other one in Tokyo. So you did uh, something fairly exclusive. But uh, behind the Monocle Cafe is the Monocle uh, Group itself, um, which uh, 
is is started i mean it started off as a magazine uh tyler brule who is the co-founder and uh, the editor at the monocle uh has a history of you know uh, doing different uh, magazines he had done a, a similar lifestyle magazine uh, about 4 to 5 years before he started uh, monocle uh before that he was a journalist um actually uh he was uh, even at the front lines in afghanistan and where he even got uh, shot uh while reporting and while he was in hospital uh is where he uh, read one of his first few uh, lifestyle magazines uh, it was a home and decor magazine and uh, realized uh, you know that he uh, was missing something in life and he asked himself the question about you know how how are we living our lives and how should we living, be living it better uh which is when he founded his first magazine and then in 2007 he uh, founded monocle uh now the idea with monocle right at the beginning was uh, when tyler brule kind of saw the world and um, understood that you know between uh, travel and uh, design and uh, uh, you know cities uh, there is this great meeting point of just how people need to be looking at Uh, their life differently and how they need to be looking at uh, travel differently and uh, discovering uh, new places that they go to so in its initial years the monocle magazine was a lot about the tyler brule life uh, right it was uh, what are the places you eat at when you go to uh, berlin or uh, what are the airlines you fly when you go from europe to asia um, it it was really defining a certain kind of lifestyle uh, which is why it had this a uh, fairly uh, elitist kind of bent to even its writing uh, but what what's kind of changed in the last 4 uh, to 5 years is that uh, one obviously uh, the group of writers has increased significantly uh, while tyler brule's vision of what he wanted monocle to become has continued to unfold uh, i mean we, we spoke about the cafes they have retail stores across the world they have their own line of clothing and tote bags and they aren't cheap for sure uh but what what's happened with the magazine is that the journalism has become a far more uh, pointed and uh, there is a, a lot more conversation around um you know city planning and uh, some of the challenges around uh, um you know conversations uh, uh you know that urban planners and uh, city planners and governments uh, are having across the world of how to just have uh, better cities more efficient cities um and i think that uh, is something that has uh, tapped quite a nerve uh, with people across the world uh, who read uh, the monocle um i think another you know fascinating part about the monocle is that it exists in a time where you know obviously everyone feels so strongly about globalization and when i say strongly uh, there are a lot of positive feelings uh, but then with some of the you know nationalistic uprising across uh, europe Uh, across uh, america now uh, with the trump government um, i'm we're seeing it right here in india uh, there is this sense of let's close the doors and let's rediscover our roots and be proud of what uh, makes us who we are uh, but i feel that at some level uh, while the monocle in the late to uh, late 2000s and um, you know around 2010 and 11 was still swimming with the tide where everyone was talking about globalization it could quite potentially be swimming against the tide today but when you keenly read um, a, a monocle magazine uh, or you read one of their city guides 
what you realize is that they are really asking you to discover a country a city uh, or even uh, you know a neighborhood in a city through the eyes of the local right while the local may be a fairly well heeled local and while the cafes may not be something uh, you know local in the city may go to every day or the or the restaurants or the hotels they recommend or even the art galleries that they recommend uh, but the stories are told through the eyes of the people who are uh, running some of those places uh, and the people running some of those places are not people you know who were necessarily you know born rich uh, but they were born with a clear vision of what that city means to them and how their establishment contributes uh, to that city so i feel that uh, in in today's time where uh, we are asking everyone to look inwards uh the monocle kind of does both uh it's it's magazines and even its network of podcasts which is uh, really rich content i mean i think they have over 12 to 14 podcasts uh, across food uh, culture films cities design entrepreneurs it's it's crazy um all of them are really talking about a world traveler who needs to respect the world and its and its many beautiful cities and countries for what they are and i and i have a feeling that this uh, definition of globalization is very interesting uh, i think it's something that more people need to sit up and kind of understand and i feel that you can truly do that uh, when when you read their magazines or you pick up one of their city guides you know to the about 30 cities that they have built these guides for or even listen to their podcasts i mean those are free um it still will talk about Uh, a lot of it will talk about a lifestyle that not maybe all of us have access to but i think a lot of us can still appreciate um, you know to give you a quick example uh, they do these yearly travel awards and uh, unlike say um, a lot of media groups like say the condenast uh, group or um, um, even um, you know say a world's top 50 restaurants um, kind of a media outlet their travel awards doesn't really uh talk about the best restaurant the best hotel the best um you know um uh, city uh you know to go for a holiday in they talk about the best steward that they met in that year or the best front desk uh uh that they uh, traveled to in that year or the best restaurant uh in us you know in europe but it does not uh, exist in any of the larger cities of europe um the travel awards also talk about the best a uh, business class experience uh, but it also talks about the best uh, you know in flight economy experience it talks about the best uh, uh, airports uh, if you want to take a nap before a flight you know so it really talks about living the life versus uh, this is potentially the life uh, that you could have it's really all in the moment and it's all in the spirit of discovering the world around you uh, in its true essence and i find that very powerful about every piece of communication or every media outlet uh, that they have and i do consider their you know their retail outlets or their products or even their cafes to be uh, you know voices uh, within the brand okay so i think going on from what you said and especially picking on the uh, 
tourism and travel bit that you mentioned one of respecting the local city that you visit to one of respecting the local population we've seen backlash against uh, rampant and excessive tourism in thailand indonesia in uh, europe we've seen it in venice and barcelona and even in india in himachal pradesh last year when it was running out of water there were signs which the locals would put up that just don't come visit our city so against that backdrop and in a world where in the last year apparently tourist uh, arrivals were at 1.4 billion internationally and although most of the people travel within their region uh, there's also a lot of uh, interregional travel that these uh, international tourists undertake so i think in that context it's all the more important that the people visiting these cities in fact do respect their uh, hosts do respect their host cities uh but in the wider context what do you think it uh, gives us a template for say as a resident of uh, say bangalore what do you take from uh, the troubles that you read about say of a local town council in italy or a local uh, city council in spain how does it impact uh, the life of say the well heeled in bangalore and uh, how should one be thinking about consuming this content so a classic uh, example right there uh, there is uh, of a city like bangalore itself right i mean you've lived here we've seen its many failings and i continue to do so every day um and i think that what happens is that you get stuck in this uh, web of uh, you know blaming the government and um or blaming the lack of it uh, in terms of really being able to uh, implement anything meaningful for the city Uh, we see garbage all over we see roads that are not really uh, built uh, for the kind of traffic that we have uh, and it's many um, you know day to day public uh, problems um at the same time in the in the monocle just last month i was reading the story about uh, the city of rome right and and obviously i mean the usual uh, picture that all of us have uh, painted in our heads about at least european cities and how they seem to have most of their act together uh but there was this story in the monocle about how rome is suffering from a uh, huge garbage issue uh, their uh, local municipality and uh, the town council uh, have uh, you know trade union issues uh, with the workers who are not ready to uh, pick up the garbage and therefore there are piles and piles of garbage across the city of rome and it seems like a very old problem and uh, uh, to me it sounded uh, so outlandish but it's true uh and i think uh, from from the point of view of where the solution lies uh, i feel it lies in the fact that the monocle is able to kind of inform you about stories like this and the story was not just reporting that there is huge piles of garbage in rome but about how they are making changes and the changes there is coming through private citizens uh people who um, you know one of them is an architect one of them is a filmmaker um one of them is a city planner and they are ideas for how to improve the city uh, again people obviously well healed um, these are in this case these are people who have kind of left very good jobs uh, or started organizations purely to solve this problem and i feel that in today's uh, this this whole global story that we are trying to tell the world i feel a lot of solutions are really going to come from there right and these solu- i mean from private citizens right and Uh, it's not always the onus cannot always be on the uh, government to find the solution or maybe you just cannot wait for the government to uh, solve for such problems 
and I think what the monocle is really doing is that because of the brand they've built and because it's the go-to place for uh, knowing, you know, what to do anywhere in the world uh, for this well-heeled, uh, uh, you know, traveler or, uh, you know, citizen. Um, I think the fact that this magazine is in their hands and they are seeing solutions by people just like them across the world uh, makes a huge difference, I feel, to uh, each of us out there. Because uh, even in a city like Bangalore, I feel some of the steps forward that we took was, you know, in the early 2000s when, um, you know, I mean, Enforces became the force that it was. Uh, it pretty much built out one side of Bangalore, you know, which is uh, now the tech hub of Bangalore. Uh, it was all private investment. Uh, stories like this need to be told because these are stories of vision. Uh, these are stories of vision unfolding in uh, cities around the world. Cities that we have potentially a lot of misconceptions around. Uh, and in the hands of the right people, I feel these stories can uh, translate into something very powerful for your own city. Um, and if not anything else, it at least allows someone like me to be reading about this and knowing that uh, such solutions exist. And, you know, going back to pretty much why we started uh, this podcast, right? It's about having uh, conversations that uh, are meaningful, that can be had with people who... Uh, you know, may take action and action is not always in really doing something on the ground, but it is about being able to influence people the right way. Um, and I feel that uh, in its own way, by kind of combining the, uh, you know, stories of the beauty and uh, the, the goodness and the great lifestyle choices that you can make, uh, you know, mixing that in with uh, stories of true change, uh, I feel is a powerful concoction for any, you know, global uh, citizen today. So, uh, given what you've said thus far, I think you are definitely very convinced that uh, at least in its space, it is one of the most important companies in the world. But in a world where there's also a Facebook, where one third of humanity is connected, and we have a whole host of, uh, you know, things that can go wrong, why do you think Monocle in its industry or say amongst all the industries is a voice of reason and why it's one of the most important companies in the world? Because the way I look at it, it is still either a obviously talking about being a good citizen or being a good global traveler. But what are the spaces and niches, especially the spaces and niches in which it is truly world class and is one of the most important voices in the world? Uh, what what do you think those are? Um, I think foremost, the fact that they are a print magazine first, right? And then everything else. Uh, I feel that uh, the fact that uh, a couple of years back, um, one of Japan's largest uh, media companies uh, invested very heavily in Monocle uh, at a valuation of about close to $115, $120 million dollars. Uh, talks about the power of what Monocle have created because this is in a time where print companies are really falling apart, uh, leaning so heavily on digital. Uh, and I must point out, you, you can't access most of Monocle's uh, uh, articles uh, online even. I mean, if, and there's no, there's no paywall also which you can kind of uh, overcome to uh, uh, access those articles. And the fact that all of them really exist only in print in a time where everyone's shunning it. So it's the, good old, it's the good old paywall where you actually have to buy it to read it. And, uh, 
yeah, not but, try to get past the paywall online. Exactly, and and I feel like that itself is so powerful, right? So automatically, it kind of concentrates its um, outflow in the hands uh, of a few, but a few who are generally uh, interested in it, right? And uh, it's bringing relevance back to print. Uh, it's gotten so many independent magazines uh, across the UK itself and uh, the rest of Europe uh, to start uh, spending the money on just great journalism and and creating enough triggers uh, within the content of the magazine to to find buyers. Um, so I think one great for the uh, print industry. Uh, I think the the other thing is uh, for me uh, the fact that. Um, people from across the world uh, who are thinkers in the space that Monocle uh, writes about uh, get together for many of their conferences, right? So for just, uh, for instance, uh, there is a quality of life conference that happens every year in cities across Europe. It happened in uh, Madrid this year, uh, where there are uh, thinkers in, uh, you know, in, in the space of uh, design and city planning, uh, food, who kind of get together to ask these tough questions, right? I mean, uh, this year on food, they were really talking about wastage. Uh, and this is coming from, you know, a, a Michelin 3 chef or a owner of a, a restaurant that you would never think even thinks about wastage. Uh, but these are people coming together, creating subgroups, of, beginning from the Monocle universe to say that, hey, listen, we want to put together resources and solve these problems, right? Um, I, I know it has a sense of, like this sinister Illuminati kind of a feel where there are these yeah. powerful people all over the world kind of coming together. But to think about it, I feel that's where the solutions lie. You know, some of the most um, powerful uh, or the, some of the most difficult problems in the world potentially will be solved through private investment uh, just for the speed of thinking uh, and uh, just for the speed of execution that comes with it, right? Uh, there is obviously the, the capitalistic uh, bent that will always exist uh, with such solutions. Uh, I mean, we can see it with uh, with a you know with a Tesla and a SpaceX uh, and what they are trying to do uh, in a, in this field of space exploration. But I feel that when uh, people like this come together, uh, is when maybe a lot of these problems will finally find a framework uh, at least for a solution. And a lot of these people will come together when such problems genuinely affect uh, the the everyday citizen, right? Which is you and me, who, who may not be in a place to uh, really uh, affect a solution right now. But by us reading this, uh, what what ends up happening is that uh, a lot of these people are aware of the fact that people know this is a problem. People are looking for a solution. And people are aware that a solution already exists. Uh, because there is a story out of uh, Lisbon about how they are dealing with over-tourism. There is a story out of Rome about how they are dealing with the dumping of uh, garbage. Uh, there are stories of how the uh, Norwegian uh, uh, prime minister is looking at, uh, uh, you know, looking beyond uh, their sovereign wealth fund and looking at genuinely uh, finding ways to get the world to invest in their in our country. I think these stories become fairly indicative of uh, our own realities and uh, the world we are living in. And, uh, you know, either finding partners to solve it uh, or just being aware of it uh, so that someday we can tell somebody uh, about uh, some of these solutions and um, how they can jump on jump onto the bandwagon. And in the process, if you get to learn about this really lesser known uh, German restaurant 
in a small town in the north of Italy, which, by the way, according to the Monocle, is the best restaurant to uh, <laughs> eat in the world right now. Yeah. I don't see what the harm is, right? So, um, I think it's a great concoction. I think uh, we all need to find a way to engage uh, with this conversation because it is a conversation. It's it's not one-sided journalism. Um, it's it feels like what a lot of digital news outlets have been able to do. I mean, what the Guardian also has been able to do, something as age-old as the Guardian has been able to do with uh, their digital platform or uh, what, say, the New Republic has been able to do or the Quartz uh, has been able to do. This is happening in print form and across the many uh, media channels that uh, they have created. And finally, very, very little of it is digital. And that, for me, in some uh, very twisted way, is, is something that gives me a lot of uh, pleasure. Um, and uh, I think it's just a, a great story that is unfolding and I, I find every opportunity to just uh, hand out a monocle magazine to somebody I know just so that they feel what I feel. Um, so, yeah. I think that's very, very powerful. And one thing more than anything else that you said in the past few minutes uh, also helps convince me the fact that they actually have they set up these forums where influencers and people who own things can actually come talk about these problems. Because in, even in the space of uh, climate change, and I earlier worked in the oil and gas industry, I transitioned into power and utilities to actually clean power and uh, utilities. That is one of the biggest challenges. I mean, there could be a Paris-like uh, resolution saying we're going to limit our emissions to ensure we don't cross the two-degree threshold. But ultimately, it's private participation and millions of small companies around the world adhering to these standards, which actually brings about uh, the outcome that we desire. It's not going to happen uh, by happenstance. It's not going to happen by government regulation. It's actually private participation, which will help deliver a lot of things. So I think that facet more than any other really convinced me uh, of the importance and the need for an institution like the Monocle. And of course, the fact that they uh, still produce print journalism that holds a romantic notion in my head too and I think it's uh, it definitely uh, will convince some of our listeners too that it is one of the most important uh, companies in the world today right and that will be a small victory for all of us so uh, in, in hope of that And on that world-changing note, we conclude episode 5. Thank you so much uh, for staying put and listening to us uh, through the entire episode. We will return with episode 6 soon, so stay tuned to the world around you because we might just pick something uh, from what you listen to or read uh, over the next couple of weeks. Uh, until then, be good and we'll catch you soon.